Hi, I'm Dave Ferguson, pastor of the Collegedale Church here on the campus of Southern Adventist University. Welcome to our podcast. We're going to explore today some of the relevant words of Jesus Christ in Scripture to my life, to your life. So enjoy the message. Beginning number one, I am absolutely, I was honored when Pastor Dave called and asked if I would carry the ball today. Um, and knowing that I am totally unworthy. In fact, I was sitting here thinking, remembering Gordon Conwell's professor forever in homiletics, uh, Haddon Robinson, some of you know, have heard of him. He's the guy who wrote the book on biblical preaching, and he died uh, July of 2020, I think, if I remember right. Anyway, uh, Haddon Robinson, uh, for the last X number of years of his life, every public sermon he ever gave, he always started this way. If you knew about me, what God knows about me, you'd spit on me and walk out the door. But now that we have that out of the way, let's journey together. Maybe that resonates with you. It certainly does with me. I know that uh, I'm just honored to be with you and privileged and totally unworthy. And I do want to say something that right from the beginning, I don't know what I'm talking about. By the way, I never did take homiletics, so I have an excuse for not being much of a preacher. Um, but um, that's, that's probably not in homiletics what they teach you to say to start sermons with. I don't know what I'm talking about. But what, I'm, what I intend to hope that you understand is the magnitude of what we're, we're just barely going to scratch the surface of something just astounding today, uh, more than I think we are capable of grasping. And we're certainly not going to get it in one bite. And, and yet I hope that maybe one little thing, the Holy Spirit will whisper to you something, just one thing, two things, and you'll say, I want to take that and run with it. I want to embrace that. I want to find out how God can grow that thing in me, that one idea, that one concept. And that's certainly my prayer. This is all above my pay grade. And as a result, we have uh, someone sitting here today who was one of my church members for five years in Massachusetts. And Patty can attest to the fact that, I haven't seen her for years, it's good to see you. Um, She can attest to the fact that it is my style. People say, is he taking every exit on the freeway? You know, does he know where he's going? And you know, sometimes I actually do. It's kind of a miracle. And you may at times feel like, wait a minute, this is a tangent and that's a tangent. Hopefully it will get glued together before we're done. The Holy Spirit will find a way to glue this together. And what I'm hoping will be glued together is this. The Sabbath is both divinely pronounced and breathed upon. And that is more than I think 99.99% of Sabbatarians have ever really understood. Pastor Dave asked me if I would carry the ball related to the book of Job and the Sabbath. What, What a curious, what a curious subject. And yet I'm hoping that like the road to Emmaus, we come to the end of the book of Luke, chapter 24, and Jesus with some friends says, I, I want to I get you to understand some stuff. You should have known this all along. You've had it in your text. It's been there in front. You just haven't grabbed it yet. And I, I hope Jesus peels back layers for us today related to the fact that the Sabbath, yes, it is a command, but the Sabbath is more than that. It is both tool and invitation. Many of you are aware of the book of Hebrews, chapter 4, and I'd like for us to very quickly read through these, these verses and hope that it, it will intrigue you to say, you know what, there may be something here. God spake in certain place uh, regarding the day, and God did rest on the seventh day from his works. And in this place again, if they enter into my rest, which if means if, means apparently it hasn't happened yet, if. It's not a a done deal. Seeing therefore there remaineth to some. Some of us haven't grabbed this yet. There remaineth to some uh, that we must enter therein, and the ones to whom it was first preached entered not in because of unbelief. We we didn't get it. He he even spoke of that certain day, verse 7, 
to David, saying, today, if you don't harden your heart, don't back off, don't resist this, don't shy away. Today, do not harden your heart. Hear his voice. Because if Jesus had given them rest, he wouldn't have to say, afterward, there's more to come. If they would have gotten it all, then he wouldn't have had to say, there is yet more to come another day. There therefore remaineth a rest to the people of God. There is yet undiscovered territory for the people of God. Because if you, if he, if a person enters into his rest, that special rest, that that unique rest, if you enter into that rest, you will cease from, you're going to get somewhere that just as God created something more, just as God did in his. So let us, and this seems so backward when you think about it, let us labor, therefore, to enter into the rest. How do you do that? How do you, that's contradictory. How do you work hard, effort, strain, strut? How do you labor to capture rest? Abraham Heschel, you'll see him a number of times today. As many of you know, he wrote that classic work, The Sabbath. And one of the, one of the sentences that to me is overriding, to those who understand, even the air of the Sabbath breathes differently. I invite you to join me in prayer. Lord, uh, we again ask, as Ben did in his prayer earlier, Lord, I appeal to you, you speak doesn't matter what I've prepared or how I think I'm going to be cute and express it or the right phrase. Lord, you've got to translate so that it is, first of all, holy and acceptable in your sight, and secondly, it will do your people some good. That you will translate, and every saint here or watching in live stream or whatever will only hear whatever it is that the Holy Spirit has been waiting to say to them at this moment. I ask that grace today. We pray in Christ's name, amen. I never understood the book of Job uh, to be as majestic as it actually is. I was, I just, you know, a long convoluted book. It's poetry, come on, you know. The world's first great epic poem, by the way. And there were other people who got it, though. Uh, There was a gentleman who created, some of you are aware of this, back in the late 1960s into the early 1970s in this region up in Kentucky near Middlesbrough, there's a state park. And uh, in the summer, they would do this outdoor theater thing where there was reflection pond and level stage, various levels of stage, and actors in costume that looked like stained glass windows and their faces were painted like stained glass windows. It was basically the recitation of the book of Job. It was actually pretty majestic, and when I saw that back when I was a student here, I, it was my first time to understand this book of Job is something. Even if you just take it as literature, remove from it your sense of theology or God or whatever, just, just as a piece of literature. This thing is majestic in world history. It is amazing, but more than that, we see an overriding something even more important than just great literature. Notice what Tennyson says. Tennyson says, it is the greatest poem, whether ancient or modern literature. That's what Tennyson called the book of Job. Daniel Webster says, it is a piece of literary genius, one of the most wonderful productions of any age or any language ever. And notice what Victor Hugo said. Victor Hugo says, tomorrow if all literature was to be destroyed and it was left to me to retain just one piece of literature, I would save the book of Job. Apparently there are people who think this book is something. It is amazing. I'm so grateful for what Pastor Dave has been doing since the turn of the year with the book of Job and what's coming on down the line. But when he asked me to cover the Sabbath in the book of Job, it was an interesting assignment because, quite frankly, friends, just being honest with you, the Sabbath's not there. Well, not directly, but it is all over the book in a principle. The word Shabbat is not in 
the book of Job, anywhere. But there is a word, nuach, or minuach, it's variant, that, that is, is rest. It's used 65 times in the Old Testament in the Hebrew, uh, and then uh, seven or eight times in the book of Job, 65 times other than Job. And it, is, it isn't just rest, cessation. Man, I could use a nap. You know, I'm going to quit doing this. I've got to stop. I've got to rest. It, it isn't, that isn't rest. That isn't nuach. Nuach is the rest that you find beside the still waters in Psalm 23. It is regenerative, restoring, protective. It is, some, it is a proactive, energizing rest. It isn't just negativity. It is something, a gift that is more, nuach. And nuach, minuach, is in the book of Job. Job is looking for that nuach, that ultimate Sabbathing kind of sense of rest. Michael Card is a good guy. Uh, I, some of you may have met, he is, he's a good guy. Whoa, that didn't, that wasn't a good thing that I just did. Thank you so much. Here. A saint and a gentleman and a scholar and not bad looking either, in spite of the mask. Amen. <laughs> Good for her. She's got great eyesight. Michael Card is, is, a, is a good guy. And... Um, he, he has shared that, a lot of you know him for his songs and, and his songwriting and things like this. Uh, the reality is he does not consider himself, a, he, told, he says, if you shake me and wake me up at two o'clock in the morning and ask me, who are you, what, what are you, what are you, what are you, he says, I'm a teacher. I'm not a singer, I'm not a songwriter, I'm a teacher. And he really does have the teacher heart and teacher skill. And one time I heard him say, to understand the Bible, you've got to get this. Genesis 1 and 2, this universe is working the way it should. And then things go south. You have this long gap, and then Revelation changes it with the last two chapters of the Bible. In Genesis 1 and 2, you have the peaceable kingdom, the great shalom, all is well. But in Genesis 3, Hasatan shows up, our nemesis, we'll talk about Hasatan in a minute, shows up our ne nemesis, and it unravels. We do not have the peaceable kingdom, not in effulgence, not in fullness. But down the line, we have lost it, and we still do not have it currently in our grasp. But in Revelation 19 and 20, the Son of God goes forth to war. And he shall reign forever and ever. Uh, fear not. The lion of the tribe of Judah has prevailed. He will set everything back right. Shalom. Lack of shalom. Ultimate, eternal shalom. The book of Job is a miniature of the same. In chapter 1, it says, everything's running just hunky-dunky. That's not the original Greek, but the Old Testament isn't Greek anyway. It's not the original Hebrew either, okay? Everything's running just the way as it should in Job chapter 1 for the first eight verses. Uh, William Blake, uh, over the bridging between, uh, what, 18th, 19th century, he did a series of art on the book of Job, and this is his portrayal of the first chapter. Job's happy, everything's fine, and uh, it unravels, verses 6 to 8, when God ratifies. God literally ratifies. You remember in verse 1 it says he is an upright man. God, verse 8, says, yeah, I agree. I'm not ashamed of this guy. This guy, Job, which, by the way, the book of Hebrews says Jesus is going to say the same thing about you in eternity. I am not ashamed to be called their God. Jesus is not, will not be ashamed of you. Man, that's worth something if we grab it 
Hasatan shows up. Hasatan is his title. It's not his name. It's the accuser. And I, I, I threw this out in first service, and I want to give it to you too because you may get some extra credit in your next term paper or something. Uh, Lucifer isn't his name either. Not to drop the bomb on you. Isaiah 14, I know right away you're saying, no, wait a minute, I saw it, it's in Isaiah 14. No, Isaiah 14. I, I love King James. I'm all over King James. I have no problem with King James, okay? I love King James. But our friends who translated the King James did not do us any favors in that they, they meant well. It wasn't sinister, but they meant well. They put a word into Isaiah 14 that really doesn't belong there because it's never been a Hebrew word, never has been. It's a Latin word, Lucifer. Never was a Hebrew word. Lucifer is not his name either, but I don't, it doesn't bother me. It's okay. All right? Hasatan shows up, the accuser, and he's ready to accuse. Not just accuse Job, he's ready to accuse God. That's behind this whole story. And God says, okay, we'll let this story unravel for a while. But nothing ultimately is unraveled in the economy of God because he is on the throne, is always going to be on the throne, will never not be on the throne. And if you have a problem with that, you better find yourself another universe to live in. Because that's the way it's going to be in this one. So even when it looks like it has unraveled, it is not unraveled for our God. Satan only draws his next breath because God gives it to him. This is not a fight among equals. Never has been. It never will be. Satan shows up, and he wants to prove a point, and God says, I, yeah, you go ahead, you try. You try to prove your point. What you intend for evil, I'm going to turn to good. You go ahead and try to prove your point. Have you considered my servant Job? It doesn't go well for Job after that for a while. His wife even looks at him and says, why don't you just give up, man? Curse God and die. His friends show up. They're not doing him a whole lot of favors, basically, and there's a number of chapters of really lousy theology where God has to straighten them out, too. You've got to be careful when you read the book of Job. Uh, don't quote anything out of context, because if you do, uh, you may come up with some really bad theology, because some of what's said about God there really stinks. But God makes sure you understand in the next chapter that that really was lousy. He straightens it out, okay? So Satan, uh, excuse me, Satan has his accusations. Job's friends, they're not doing him any favors. And Job then comes up with, oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might even come into his presence. Uh, make sure you read the next verse. Job isn't saying that with a halo. I, don't get me wrong, he is 57,000 times the saint I ever will be. But let's not make the man to be what he is not. Because in verse 4, he says, Oh, that I knew where I could find him, that I might even come to it, because I would line God up against the wall, and I'd look at him and say, Mr. Jehovah, sir, you have some explaining to do. I would arraign him. I would... Grill, I would interrogate this God saying, what's up? If I knew where I could find him. That's what the passage actually says. It's not as melodic as, oh, that I knew where I might find him. Okay, it's not that melodic. And God gives him a chance to share what's going on in his heart too before God takes over. Ed Wright did really well with this last week. Chapter 38 and onward, God takes over. And he gets everything the way it should be. In Job 42, everything's corrected. Let me ask you a very important question. Are you okay with the book of Job if there is no chapter 42? Are you okay with this book if it ends with 41 and Job is still a broken and destitute man? Are you okay with that? In Daniel, the first six chapters, every chapter has the same pattern. The chapter begins with God's friend in trouble, or God's friends, in serious trouble, 
And you don't know if they're going to survive to the end of the chapter, and they don't either. But at the end of the chapter, uh, you know, they come out smelling like a rose, and the, and the credits are running on the screen, and the violins are playing in the background, and we like that. Are you okay with if any of those six chapters in the book of Daniel, if he actually does get eaten by the lions? If the fire is not rendered impotent, are you okay with it? Now, the boys who went into the fire, they were okay with it because you have the majestic passage in chapter 3 where they look and they say, uh, Nebi, buddy, uh, you have this evil design for us with this flame. And I want to tell you right now, our God can make that flame into nothing. You know, no big deal. But even if he doesn't, it doesn't matter. And if not. Our God can do it. doesn't mean he's going to. And we're okay if he doesn't. Are you okay if God doesn't do it? Are you okay if Jesus doesn't lift a finger to save John the Baptist from a horrible execution? Are you okay with Jesus pulling Peter aside in John chapter 21 and saying, "Uh, Peter, my friend, I got something to tell you. I want you to think about this for more than 30 years. The day's coming down the line where you're going to be crucified. Have a nice day. And we know that Peter knew what he was saying because when you come to 2 Peter chapter 1, he says, I'm getting ready to die. And by the way, I'm getting ready to die the death that our Lord has showed me. I, I've had a long time to think about this. And Jesus did not stop the crucifixion. Jesus didn't do anything to stop Paul from being beheaded. Are you okay if the book of Job does not have a chapter 42? Does God still get to be God? It's an important question. There was a Christian mystic named Julian of Norwich, and she wrote this. Ring out, O bells of Norwich. God has made all things well. God can make all things well. God shall make all things well, and all shall be well again. O ring, bells of Norwich, all shall be well again. If God wanted to, he could make all things well right now. And he is going to. It's etched in stone. He's going to. And our friend, the late Calvin Miller, worded it so simply. Friends, it's only just one world away. That's all it is, just one world away. When all shall be well again. But how do we live until we get there? How do we live between Genesis 3 and Genesis, uh, Revelation 21? How do we live between Job 1.9 and Job 42? How do we live that interim gap where all is not well, where we're striving? That's where you and I are. How are we called to live in the interim? We are called to live with havod as an ever-constant awareness. Havod is the Old Testament word for Glory. It's not the New Testament word, doxa, which sort of means, by the way, Latin too, by the way. Uh, it, it, it doesn't mean shimmery, glowy. The Old Testament word havod for glory means heavy. Our God is heavy in this universe. He is dripping in every square centimeter of this universe. He's heavy here. He is ever-present The glory of God is ever-present in this universe. It's what Jacob understood when he woke up after the latter vision, and he said, God's been here all along, man. I just didn't see it. It's it's what Hebrews records of Moses. The man lives his life ever-constantly as though he saw him who was invisible, living with a constant vision of the invisible Isaiah chapter 6, the angels sing, the earth is filled with his glory. And who are they singing it? Who's hearing this? Isaiah. Isaiah looks at the angels and says, excuse me, this is the year that King Uzziah died. We're in a time of national transition and calamity. Everything's fallen apart. Haven't you been reading the news, angels? Can you honestly sing with a straight face that the earth is filled with his glory? How do you get away with that? You live as seeing that which is invisible. 
It's not in your hands now. It's coming. It's on the way. But we don't have it yet. David, Pastor David, did, he did so well for three weeks, and always, but the three weeks when he, he discussed finding the answers in, in, in approaching the sanctuary. And last week, Ed Wright, it was masterful how he shared about God the creator and, and God was creator who is ongoing sustainer who is aching for presence. And how do we pull the presence into the, where he is sustaining? Put yourself in my sandals. I gotta follow those guys? Dave and, and Ed, really? They, shared, they have shared majestic stuff. Abraham Heschel said the sanctuary, a palace in time. That's what the Sabbath is. We are called to live in this sanctuary, cut out of, made in building blocks of time because that's where we dwell in the presence. And notice this, this is strong. The Sabbath is a shrine that neither Romans nor Germans could burn. The Sabbath is a sanctuary that is totally, everything else is irrelevant. It doesn't matter what's going on in life outside. The Sabbath is a sanctuary where that which is outside is not a threat. Cannot control, cannot demean, cannot diminish. It's a sanctuary. The first thing in the Bible called holy is the Sabbath. Genesis chapter 2. Kaddish is the Hebrew term. Again, I want to confess to you that I'm going to share some things here with you that to me are just bigger than my brain. But maybe you'll get it. The first five days of creation, God stepped out and he said at the end of each day, he finished his work and he said, Kitov, this is good. Good day, good, good job, solid, I'm, I'm pleased. This is, this is right, this is enough. When he came to the sixth day of creation, he had knelt down by the side of the river and taken mud and gotten, gotten his fingernails dirty and he kissed, he breathed, he blew to life this next thing in creation called humanity, his children. And so it wasn't just kitov. He finished that day and he said, tov ma'od, this is very good. This is, this is more than good. What this day's work has, has accomplished is more than good. Tov ma'od. But then he did something on the seventh day. This day is Kaddish. I proclaim this day more. More. More than Monday or Tuesday or, are ever going to be. I proclaim this day more, and I want you to think about it. I use the, I, I, this, this has hit me. Time on steroids. That's what Sabbath is supposed to be. Time on steroids. Every beautiful thing you've ever seen comes from the voice of God. God stepped out and said, let there be cardinals and let there be dogwood, and there was. God said, let there be bison, and I want to pause here because I want to tell you something about this piece. You actually have a relationship to this artist, Donna Brass. Donna Brass's husband, David, is retired out of the Georgia Cumberland Conference. He finished his career at Lenore City and Grace Church in Knoxville. This is Donna, his, his wife's art. She is so good. Yeah, look it up. DonnaBrass.com, I think it is. Oh, she is so good. She is so skilled. God said... Let there be bison. Boom. John chapter 1, Colossians 1, and Hebrews 1 uh, it seemed to be telling us that the one who actually had the voice, the voice, it was the voice of Christ. The one who became the word and it became flesh and dwelt among us was the one through whom all things were created and anything that was created was not, if, it, if he didn't speak it, it wasn't created. John chapter 1. The voice of Christ proclaims the Sabbath more. The voice of Christ is enough 
to tell water turn to wine. The voice of Christ is enough to remove every vestige of leprosy from every cell in the body of a leper. The voice of Christ is so much that his followers were blown away when they saw him stand up and nature obeyed him. What manner of man is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? The voice of Christ tells death to wave the white flag and get down on its knees. This, by the way, is an artist who grew up in the Cameroon. She lives in France now. She grew up in the Cameroon, and she's done about 70 paintings on the gospel stories, and she always translates them into the village of her childhood. I actually find it very creative. All Jesus had to say was Talitha Kumai. And it came to pass what Revelation prophesies. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. Fasten your seatbelts, friends. Behold, I show you a mystery. The mystery is that even death is going to get down on its knees at the command of Christ. Death surrenders at the command of Christ. We're heading to the resurrection weekend. Don't forget that. The day will come when death fully surrenders at the command of Christ. Just his word is enough. The shout. Holy time, and God doesn't have to explain nothing. My mom would hate me using grammar like that. Sorry, Mom. 92 years old, loves the Sabbath to the core still, but she would right now be not happy with me. Sorry, Mom. It's called Hukim. Hukim means just because he's God. That's a Hebrew concept. God doesn't have to explain. He doesn't have to justify. He doesn't have to, nothing. He's God. God can be arbitrary if he wants. Why ask why me? Because God doesn't have to answer, because he's God. He gets to just because he's God. And if God takes 24 hours and pronounces them something else, he doesn't have to tell you why he's done it. He's God. He gets to do that. Hukim. And he doesn't need me to try to give the rationale or explain him. He doesn't need that. And I think when God calls these 24 hours something more, he isn't just telling us to circle it on the calendar and, oh, yeah, pay a little extra attention to this. No. I, I hope you're, you're putting this together. I hope you're thinking, wait a minute, the voice that made creation coalesced energy into creation, proclaimed this day more. That may mean something. Ruach, the Ruach Elohim in the second verse of the Bible hovers down over the, the chaos, tohu vavohu, the chaos, of, of, and, and choking darkness, hoshek, al pani hamayim. Choking darkness is, and, and the Ruach of God, the wind of God, uh, settled down, brooded, mirakefet, down upon, the, and, and v'yomer Elohim yehior v'yehior, and God said, let there be light, and light was. It's just word, but the ruach, the wind of God, the spirit of God, have you noticed how closely it seems to look like nuach? A day spirit filled. The rest that is spirit filled, he called holy the Sabbath, the next thing in the Bible he called holy was his people, Exodus 19. He says, I call you to be holy people. And finally he said, let them make me a sanctuary that I might have presence, like Ed Wright talked about last week, that I might have presence. Among, let them, I, I could stop with that sentence right now, and you probably would wish I would. Let my people make me a sanctuary that I might dwell among them. And Heschel called the Sabbath a sanctuary. Let my people make Sabbath so that I might dwell with them. Ooh, that's not bad. 
Harosh. Let them make me a sanctuary. And they didn't work on the sanctuary on the Sabbath. They were doing the sacred, and they didn't build the sanctuary. And they paused for the rest of the Sabbath, even though they were doing the work of God. Heschel said, one must abstain from the toil and the strain of the Sabbath day, even the strain in the service of God. Powerful stuff. So holy time and holy people. So how do we get it done? Oh, that's very interesting. Thank you. You've, you've stretched us with philosophy. What do we do with it? How do we get it done? Do you remember what Job starts? This, there's this guy named Job. He's upright. And God says, seven verses later, I agree. I call him upright. Let the word upright be what it means. Upright does not mean correct. Let the word upright say what it says. It is something more than correct. Upright, how do you live up so that you can live right? And can you live right if you don't live up? To be an upright person dictates something more than just being correct. It's a whole lot deeper than that. The Sabbath is a tool a gift that God gives us so that we can live up and right. And it's more than a correct day. I'm a Seventh-day Adventist. I've been a Seventh-day Adventist for a long time. Um, I've had my options. I could have done other things. I mean, any of you could if you're a Seventh-day Adventist. Any of you could. Uh, I, I was interim pastor at an American Baptist congregation for a while. Uh, wonderful experience, thank you. I was interim pastor for a congregational Christian church for a while. Also, a wonderful experience. This coming Friday, for the fourth year in a row, it's going to be my privilege to speak at a large interfaith Good Friday service for the fourth year in a row. It's not like I haven't been outside of Adventism. My graduate stuff was all with Jews. I, I, I've had other options. I've been so blessed and so privileged. But I'm a Seventh-day Adventist, and I'm, I don't envision I'm going anywhere else. The Sabbath means, I don't, know, I don't always understand my church, but I love it. And the Sabbath is something that I get a little better now than I did a year ago and three years ago, and, and, and I hope I grow in this thing. The Sabbath I, is deeper and, and more meaningful to me than it's ever been in my life. I'm not surrendering this. I don't know what it would take to surrender it. So having said that, I, I throw that out so I don't scare you. So that you don't think I'm coming across, oh, he's just being critical. My fear is that a lot of Seventh-day Adventists that I've met through the years, there's only two things when it comes to right, when it comes to Sabbath. Number one, can you proof text you got the right day? And if you can make sure you got the right day, can you decide what the right thing to do is and what you don't do? Correctness regarding Sabbath for so many, I fear, is right day, right deed, and that's it. And that is so, Jesus, Jesus told us upright is more than that. Jesus looked at people who knew the scripture inside and out. They could, they could proof text, they could do everything with the Sabbath. Man, they took the Sabbath and they added so many rules. Jesus said, you guys, you've layered on so much about the Sabbath, you can't even do it yourself. And then you go out and you'll travel halfway around the world to convert somebody to your thinking. And once you got them hooked, then you bring them back and you turn them into twice the son of the devil that you are. I didn't make that up, friends. Go read Matthew 23. Right on this very stage, about 1970, which tells you I'm ancient, right on this very stage, about 1970, Morris Venon stood right here, and he said, there were people who were so desperate to make sure they could get his body off the cross so they could get home in time to have a good Sabbath. Jesus knew those people.
it became codified in the mission of the tractate, and I don't want to degrade the mission because I actually find it, it's kind of fun. Some of, you, some of the best gospel stuff you'll ever hear, you can actually get out of the mission. I'm not kidding, okay? So don't, don't think I'm completely, but there are silly, some silly things there that just don't help. Uh, this morning, Jim came up here and helped this morning, and he dragged a stool across the stage. He broke the Sabbath when he did that, according to the Mishnah, because he created a furrow in the dust into which a seed might fall, and he participated in agriculture. You are not to go swimming on the Sabbath day, because when you do, you come up out of the water, your swimming suit drips, you irrigate a blade of grass, and you have participated in agriculture. Same reason you're not supposed to spit on the ground. But heaven help us, what if you spit on the ground and you bend down and you make a little mud ball? You have done the work of a potter in that you are working in clay. And then you have the audacity to put it on some blind guy's eyes on the Sabbath day. Heaven help us. It's all there. You guys know the Sabbath inside, outside, upside down, right side up, and man, you don't even get it. That's what Jesus said. Or some Jews understood. This is from a commentary on Genesis. Excessive piety may endanger the fulfillment of the essence of the law. Whoa. That's just paraphrasing what Jesus said. On the Sabbath, we care for the... You You want to participate in agriculture on the Sabbath? This is it. On the Sabbath, we care for the seed of eternity that is planted in the soul. The seed of eternity. Uh, Ever since I was young, I've heard the term Sabbath keeping. That really is not a positive term. There is better. Keeping is a narrowing term. You keep the cookies in the cookie jar. You keep the trash in the trash can. You keep the dog on the leash. Keeping is a way that you narrow and control. That is way too small for the Sabbath. Many thinking Jews do not use the term Sabbath keeping, they use the term Sabbath making. Because it is supposed to be a day that resonates related to the creation and the creator God. If you make Sabbath, you are tapping into eternity and the creative process of God. You cannot stumble into Sabbath and have great Sabbaths. Sabbath takes planning and effort. Let us labor, therefore, to enter into the rest. Great Sabbaths don't just happen by accident. Great Sabbaths are made. You participate with the creative God in creating Magnificent Sabbaths. Sabbath making, not Sabbath keeping. I'm even going to take it one step farther. God took dust, breathed into it life, and man became living soul. God took hours and spoke and breathed into them. Did it create living Sabbath? something Thursday can never be. And I don't even know what that means. I don't understand the magnitude of what that might represent. Living Sabbath. A day with its own kind of breath, the air of the Sabbath brings differently. Adam intoned a song of praise to the Sabbath day, and God looked at him and said, you're singing, you don't sing to God, you sing to the God of the, what's this? You're singing to the Sabbath, not to the God who made. The Sabbath at that point herself arose from her seat and sang his praise. The Sabbath uniquely chants a hymn to God. Can the Sabbath on its own accord sing? I don't even understand that. The Sabbath uniquely chants a hymn to God. It is so much more than just right day, right deed. You've got to live up. How do we do it? I'm coming to an end here. I know you're sitting here saying, is he ever going to end? Coming to an end. We live in anticipation. 
living as though. It's called realized eschatology, now but not yet. Jesus said that. He said, you guys looking for the kingdom down the line? Excuse me? The kingdom is already here. And when Jesus said that, there were 13 Roman soldiers standing just down there, getting ready to abuse the population. When Jesus said that, there was organized crime running the temple. He called it a den of thieves, the temple of God. When Jesus said that, there were lepers all over the land. When Jesus said that, there were parents who had problems with their children. When Jesus said that, there were people like the woman in John chapter 8 who were being abused by the religious system. And Jesus said the kingdom's already reality. When Jesus said that, there were funerals going on in the land. We only know of three that Jesus stopped in his ministry. How many others happened every day of the ministry of Jesus and he did not stop them? There were funerals going on in the land of Israel and Jesus said the kingdom's already reality. The crucifixion they saw that Passover weekend was not the first the disciples had ever seen and it certainly wasn't going to be the last they were ever going to see and I can almost guarantee you without any hesitation that Jesus and his disciples in their various journeys at random times saw people who were being crucified. The Romans turned it to a science. It served the purpose of Pax Romana. And with people hanging on crosses, Jesus said, the kingdom of God's already here. In fact, he himself knew that he was going to go directly into the gates of hell in a place called Gethsemane in a way that no other in eternity ever would or will. And he still said, the kingdom of God is already here. We are to live as if the kingdom of God is already here, as if we were already breathing the atmosphere of heaven as if we are reaching forward to pull the Sabbaths of eternity toward us. Don't ask me to explain how when time is no more, we still have some reckoning of when Sabbath comes around in eternity. Isaiah 66 says that's true. I don't understand it. But God has proclaimed it, and the word of God stands forever. So how do we live this interim time? On Friday evening, in a traditional Jewish home, two candles get lit, and the woman who lights the candle generally takes her hand, and she pulls the light toward herself to embrace it, to begin to embrace the Sabbath queen, to embrace the day. And the Sabbath queen comes. It's a day of renewal and regeneration and reconnection and all those good reads, and not really a day of restriction. Not really. The rest is proactive. It is not negation. We are embraced by the Sabbath and we embrace the Sabbath. It is reciprocation for you to embrace the Sabbath and let the Sabbath embrace you. She lights the two candles. When Sabbath ends, and I have the four that you see on the screen right now, I have these four right here. They're called Havdalah candles. You can see them. They are braided. When you start Sabbath, six days of the week have fractured the important things of your life. Uh, you with your family and with the church and God. You know, start, life gets busy. Okay, Sabbath comes and starts this way with the flame. When the Sabbath ends, the candle that is lit is braided together. Sabbath takes man and wife to this. Sabbath takes parents and children to this. Sabbath takes man and God to this. Sabbath takes you with your church family to this. That's what Sabbath is supposed to do. It is to be an opportunity to mend your fractured and tattered life. Those who observe Sabbath in Judaism, they start at 18 minutes before sundown. This is Machich Makoff, French artist. Uh, her painting is called Angels Running Toward God. I love it. If you're going to get to God, get there in a hurry. Get there as fast as you can. If you're going to get to the Sabbath, get there as soon as you can. And then when it comes to ending Sabbath, this is her same artist painting on the seventh day, God just being present with his children. The Sabbath ends 42 minutes after sundown in observant Judaism. 
It's a 25-hour day. Ellen White said years ago, sacredly guard the edges of the Sabbath. Get there as soon as you can and be very slow to surrender it. Don't easily and willingly surrender the Sabbath. Take your time walking away from Sabbath. Jesus knew how to do this, how to live this. How to, Jesus knew how to live in two worlds. The Sabbath is not a date, but an atmosphere. The day will come when we fully grab onto that which is yet to be, when all shall be well again. But the Sabbath allows us to live as though it is now. We're already tasting the water of life. We're already reaching out for the fruit of the tree of eternity. We're already participating in the great shalom. This world right now is like Sabbath Eve, but the world to come is one long Sabbath. To those who understand, the air of the Sabbath breathes differently. How do we live in the interim? Sabbath is our tool and our gift to one day a week grab onto that world that is yet to come and squeeze it as tight as we can and don't surrender it. And when you come to the end of the Sabbath, dude, only six more days till Sabbath. peaceable kingdom is already here and it's here today it'll be here tomorrow sort of but it's here today because God said so I invite you to pray Lord we want to live up and right teach us to live this interim time well to grab what you have available to us to give us the energy of eternity even in the brokenness of today thank you for the gift of the sabbath even though we don't understand it we pray in your holy name